The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to this special bonus extra episode of Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer here at Slate, um, and I am in the DC studio. I'm joined by two very special guests uh, today. The first is um, a senior editor at Slate, Jeremy Stahl. He's calling in from uh, the Golden State from California, um, and he knows a lot about politics, so that will um, that bodes well for our discussion, which we will unveil in a second. But um, hi, Jeremy. It's really nice that you can join us. Hi, Katie. I'm really happy to be doing this. And our third panelist is Ava Lubell, who is the general manager of Slate um, and a lawyer and, in general, a tactical genius. Also, that will bode well for our discussion. Um, Ava, it is great to have you here. I am so happy, really honored to be here. Um, thank you for the tactical genius remark. I'm not sure that's at all true, but I'll, I'll well, live it up. You'll have a chance to prove your <laughs> prove yourself. Uh, I will your second tactical genius. Oh, thanks, guys. Yes. Great strategist in the field. <laughs> Before we get started, I'd like to do a quick program note, which is our official uh, April audiobook club will uh, resume, obviously, at the beginning of the month in April. And we are going to read Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. So please uh, stay tuned and join us for that discussion. So we have convened to talk about Sun Tzu's The Art of War. It's a pamphlet written more than 2,000 years ago, possibly in the 6th century BCE in China by Sun Tzu, who is a military scholar, among other things. Um, and we're going to see if we can apply any of this manifesto's lessons to our lives in 2017. Um, so the book is broken into 13 sections. Each section consists of a numbered list. Uh, they're kind of aphoristic entries, little drops of advice. So I guess I'd like to start by asking both of you if any of Sun Tzu's suggestions resonated for you personally. So, you know, now that you're well-versed in the art of war, have you practiced it without realizing? And um, are there things that you're going to take away from this uh, book going forward? So maybe, Jeremy, um, I'll start with you. So I, I'll, I'll start off by saying I bought I bought this book and you don't need to buy it. It's public domain. It's everywhere. But I bought this book within a week of uh, Donald Trump's presidential election and felt like, uh, you know, I was in a probably a place of just personal and um, professional and general disruption and desperation and feeling like, you know, this this book has this popular image, I think, uh, in popular culture as being like sort of maybe a handbook and guidebook for uh, you. The generous way to, to think about it would be the incredibly savvy, but the other way to think about it would be like sociopaths. <laughs> and see, seeing Trump's election victory made me feel like, well, okay. I maybe they're onto something or not necessarily maybe sociopaths are onto something, but maybe I want to know how the people who embrace this in such a way, uh, business leaders, uh, generals, uh, politicians, um, how, how they might think. And, you know, in, in the popular imagination, those are the, the types of people that are interested in this. So I like bought it. And uh, I have to say, I don't really know that any of this applies to my actual life. I can see 
looking looking at it uh, in the topics I cover, uh, politics and the law, and specifically politics and the law in this moment, how uh, I can observe and think about how maybe political actors are thinking in ways that Sun Tzu might have advised. But personally, the best advice that I could take away from this was uh, number 18, I can't remember in which section was, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. I feel like that's generally good advice. (laughs) Know your adversary and know yourself. And that's one that, yes, from a common sense perspective, I'm trying to practice more. I want to know myself better and also, you know, the adversaries. Um, And I will say one last thing on this, which is that in uh, Trump has said explicitly that he considers uh, journalists or the fake news, as he calls it, and he lists off a, a number of fake news outlets such as CNN, the New York Times, et cetera, NBC News as the enemy, quote unquote, of the people. So uh, he has taken this incredibly adversarial viewpoint of journalists, and I think it's only fair and sensible for journalists to respond in kind. And I wouldn't say that from an ideological perspective even, but just from a perspective of uh, journalists are seeking truth. And Donald Trump, to me at this point, based on so many of his actions, is an enemy of the truth. Well, what about you, Ava? Well, I came to this book kind of looking for tips, to be honest. Um, because a lot of my day is spent negotiating. Uh, Not that negotiation always needs to be war. I don't think technology contracts require that level of aggression. But, you know, it's interesting to hear different perspectives on this, because usually when I go into a negotiation, I always try and start from the nicest place possible, from a place of, you know, assuming collaboration. And there, you know, there's something in the air right now where that kind of seems to be a really flawed strategy, at least on the political front. So people keep saying, oh, okay, like, you know, Democrats, when it comes to a judicial nominee, they're, they want, they're giving Gorsuch a hearing. They're not fighting tooth and nail. But the other side is constantly, constantly fighting. So like maybe this idea that I'm going to be really nice and collaborate, which probably like no one has ever found me a collaborative person before. So this is at least what I strive to be. I don't know that anyone ever receives me that way. But maybe that approach is not right. And of course, early on, right away, Sun Tzu says, you know, all warfare is based on deception. And and I, you know, I was struck by that because I think, you know, at least in the modern professional world, we assume, okay, transparency is this inherent value and everyone should try to be as transparent and communicative as possible. And the notion that somehow we as, you know, a more civilized society has no idea how to combat some of the more pernicious sides of a of a Trump administration. It's be, you know because we're just like not playing by the same rules, and you know we don't believe in this notion that all warfare should be based on deception, and we don't believe in scorcher strategies, which is something else that Sunsu talks about later and the value of that. But you know what if the other what if the other side feels that way? So that's kind of my first impression. Like, well, maybe I need to be rethinking how I do my entire job. Yeah, I mean, I. Also was not, you know, I read things like never attack uphill. And I was thinking, okay, great. Next time I'm like playing capture the flag, I will know not to directly attack uphill. You're but a I good did. runner though, Katie. So maybe you have you have the leg strength. 
uh, I don't know about that, but I do. I mean, this is also a book that, as you both have mentioned, has been embraced by the sort of um, combative or at least hungry Silicon Valley types. I think I saw a report that um, Evan Spiegel of Snapchat uh, bought copies for his six-person team uh, or his six-person management team, at least, after he um, met Mark Zuckerberg in an elevator and uh, felt incredibly intimidated and said, wow, I need to sort of um, remake my uh, – my perspective about like how to deal with competitors. Um, and I think maybe had the same come to Jesus moment that you were referring to. But I do think also um, that idea that deception is the heart of warfare uh, really interested me because it wasn't really valor or moral uprightness or um, or even honesty, like purity of spirit is the heart of warfare. It's really this quite Machiavellian um, perception. And I do think like that is significant that right now in 2017, that's the kind of value system that we are turning to as like somehow more relevant to where we are. So he's got the section on, you know, one of the uh, principles, the key like four or five principles described is the moral law. And when you hear those words, we have a certain understanding of what that means. It means ethics and, you know, uh, trying to do the right thing. Um, and for for Sun Tzu, the moral law causes people to uh, to be in complete accord with their ruler so that they will follow him regardless of their lives. So it's about control. The moral law is control in this world. And he follows that up by saying, you know, the commander, the person who is in control, stands for the virtues of wisdom, sincerely benevolence, courage, and strictness. So the ruler who is, you know, the moral law is meant to guide its fo the, the people to follow is supposed to be a good one, but that's not what morality and the moral law, even just by its plain definition in this mean, in this means. And I, I just want to say like, when I was talking about sociopathic, that was a very ungenerous description, but like in my, my understanding and imagination coming into reading this, like that's, those are the popular culture figures that, uh, you know, have been depicted as big art of war fanatics. And I'll list off some people that I knew about beforehand and also like uh, did Googling on and found to be uh, big art of war fans and, and or have uh, fictional characters as such. And Patrick Bateman is one. <laughs> uh, Tony Soprano is loves the art of war. Um, Who's another one? Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko uh, in uh, the film Wall Street is uh, he says, uh, I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it is ever fought. That's good advice. But it's also like advice from the guy who is winning the battle before they are fought by cheating. Um, Although I would say that's the strategy of a lot of prosecutors, not to make this super boring illegally, but, you know, people keep talking about he's in the news all the time. And if you you know ever talk to someone who's like a really excellent prosecutor, they'll say we never prosecute a case we don't know we can win because we've done all the mm -hmm. prep work before. So that's like an interesting modern day application for our yeah. modern day warriors that you like preparation. That seems like a real thing that he does harp on that 
there seems to be some logic and foothold there. It's really good advice. And it's also followed by another one in my list, which is uh, who has cited it on multiple occasions and cited this book. And that's Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, (laughs) who is also like a dark arts master uh, in the view of most people, including me. Does like Barney like Sun Tzu? Can we get, is there anyone? (laughs) Mr. Rogers loves Sun Tzu. Um, But I do want to push back a little bit on the notion that um, this is an immoral writer because I think he's amoral. He's endlessly pragmatic, but there's no evidence of bloodlust or sadism here, right? Like one of the, um, the points that he keeps sounding, and I did actually just side note, find this, uh, beautiful and poetic, but also quite repetitive in in a way. Like there were a few um, main themes that he just kept um, attacking from different angles, uh, which maybe speaks to his idea of what an attack is anyway, because I think that um, <laughs> he actually talks about um, assaulting a foe from different angles as well. Um, and he does that to his argument, which I thought was neat. But um, one of the things that he says is repeatedly is that supreme excellence is in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. And so his ideal war is actually a war in which they never even pick up the sword. Um and it's averted. And he also um, says that rapidity is of the essence. You want to get in, get out. Uh, no one benefits from a prolonged engagement. And so there's a real distaste for conflict, for violence, for um, the hell that is war um, and a clear eyed, uh, I guess, recognition of that. No, I agree with you. There's this yeah. notion of preservation and preservation mm-hmm. of his men in particular kind of makes you wonder what. You know, we get we get to the point where war is already a foregone. What about, you know, I almost wonder what he would think about when people are making the decision to go into war in the first place. Mm-hmm. He, he also talks about there's a line in there and I can't remember the specific line, but it is like the wise leader who is well versed and knows the, the bloody costs of war and is aware of uh, what what it costs both a kingdom or whatever uh, and the people. In my notes, I have a reference to Bond villains Mm. because there is something like you're not supposed to divulge your plans to anyone. I was like, well, Bond villains do all the time. That must be why they lose. Yeah. Well, that's another interesting point, like um, to to take his kind of beautiful lyrical uh, language and make it. not so lovely. Um, <laughs> he basically says, when the enemy thinks that you're going to zig, you need to zag. And um, if the enemy uh, perceives weakness, that's where you need to be strong. And you should feign disorder uh, when you're actually at your uh, at your best. Um, and so there's really, there's a lot of disassembly going on, but I'm not really sure what to make of that. Um, because I can see uh, situations in which an earnest show of strength for instance, in the Cold War and like the arms race is actually much more effective than pretending that you're weaker because isn't seeming weak a provocation, sort of like a go ahead and attack us uh, type move where if your object is to is to prevent being attacked, you might want to actually puff out your chest and seem pretty strong. He goes all in on the deception thing. So I guess I, you, your point is very well taken. And uh, there's there are a lot of contradictions in this book, I feel like, but there's nothing in there that would like back down from that, you know, uh, feign weakness portion of it. Which, again, just feels, you know, so antithetical to the moment we're in where everyone seems to want to be showing strength. So I guess we're only partially executing 
you know, some some of what he, Sun Tzu advises. And there there was another phrase, though, that caught my eye about, you know, maybe not necessarily feigning weakness, but not showing a sign of your strength and letting someone else's choleric temper take a hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if that resonated with either of you, but it was like choleric temper. temper. I, I have heard, I've seen examples of that recently. <laughs> I was like, is this a parenting guide too? Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I'm obviously talking about someone in particular. Right. Yeah. Right. The, the seek the seek to irritate him thing was definitely that felt like a strategy of the, the Hillary. You're talking about um, uh, Bernie Sanders, right? Of That's course. what we're talking about. A political figure who has a famous caloric temper who needed to be irritated. No, you're talking about Donald Trump. And I think precisely what you said in reading that portion, my thoughts went to uh, a specific moment in the presidential cam- campaign or a series of moments where during like big debates and um, big speeches and big, big moments like the Democratic National Convention, the Clinton campaign uh, seemed to, at a certain point, be explicitly uh, bringing up things that they knew would cause Trump to shoot himself in the foot and would upset him and anger him in some way. And I'm thinking of um the uh, Kazir Khan episode where during the Democratic National Convention, uh, they spotlighted that and uh, they spotlighted this uh, family who had lost their their son. And it was a Muslim family, a Muslim soldier who had died fighting for the U.S. in Iraq. And uh, Trump just went bonkers and like started attacking this uh, Gold Star family for no good reason. Uh, aside from maybe his uh, what's the what's the term caloric temper, yeah, and then and then, and, yes, well, <laughs> I mean maybe maybe HRC is a real fan too. Maybe it's anyone in DC. Yeah, and well, and the other thing that uh, the Trump, I mean, but then again, like this, the reality gives the lie to all of this because guess who's president? Like it's not Hillary Clinton, but um, you would think that um, Donald Trump would heed the no unforced errors clause in this pamphlet. Like that was one thing that he also returned to Sun Tzu um, over and over again was uh, I think the words were to secure ourselves against defeat lies in our own hands um, while the opportunity of defeating the enemy is provided by the enemy himself. So you can keep yourself from falling. um, But by the same token, you are the person who invites uh, the enemy into your walled gate, uh, into your walled citadel, um, and who opens the gate. And it's really not within the power of the adversary to win. It's only um, within the power of the adversary to not lose themselves. Um, and it seems like Trump, like with Alicia Machado, with uh, Kazir Khan, as you said, uh, just kept shooting himself in the foot. But somehow it worked for him. So I don't know what to make of that. I, I looked it up and it, he, in his book, in Donald Trump's book, which, you know, who knows if he read it, nonetheless wrote it, uh, Trump 101, The Way to Success. One of the books that he recommends is uh, this book. And he says, those wanting a leadership book won't be disappointed by Sue's insights into the wise general. And those wanting a treatise on business tactics can also make great use of tips on strategy and appearing to be what you're not. Do we actually think Trump ever read this book? Like, Oh, surely he just wanted to seem tough. And so he dispatched someone to look up like, you know, writings but, by generals. But like we know from prince. Sun Tzu, you're not supposed to look tough. Right. So how's yeah. that? 
I don't point. think he read it though. Like I, I agree. It's like, cause it's not an easy or comfortable or fun, particular, particularly fun read necessarily. Like you said, some of these, some of these aphorisms are very, quite beautiful and poetic, but a lot of them are just like weird military tactical strategies from like, uh, the third century BC or whatever. And it's like, well, this is, this you can get kind of bogged down a little bit, even though it's like the size of a pamphlet and it would take, and it takes like, you know, can take very, very short period of time to read. One of the things that strikes me about, you know, how inaccessible it is is kind of how lonely it must be to be this, you know, mm. commander, general, whatever. To, because basically it's saying you need to be perfect. You need to be thinking 10 steps ahead. You have to keep your troops motivated. You have to be thinking about the other side. And there's also a really interesting notion that somehow the commander that is being described is separate from the sovereign. And I didn't, you know, I didn't take that to mean like a higher power. I thought it meant like king in general. And usually when you think about warlord, you kind of think about one and the same. And there were a couple of references to sovereign that really struck me. I'm like, well, it almost seems to advocate if you need to go a different direction from your ruler. And, you know, for modern day, the analogy would be joint chief or a general vis-a-vis president, that that's okay. But there, there's this notion of burden that this one person is supposed to be doing all this and how lonely that must be. And that, it, you know, there's such a singular sense of obligation. Like, well, who would, who would want to be the master of this art of war? It, it It's an expectation that I don't know who could possibly meet. Right. It, it does seem like a burden. Um, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about um, the the um, difference between tactics and strategy, because that was one thing that really fascinated me. Um, when Sun Tzu talks about these two terms, he says, um, all men can see the tactics whereby I conquer, but what none can see is the strategy um, out of which victory is evolved. Do not repeat the tactics which have gained you one victory, but let your methods be regulated by the infinite variety of circumstances. Military tactics are like unto water, for water in its natural course runs away from high places and hastens downwards. So in war, the way is to avoid what is strong and to strike at what is weak. Water shapes its course according to the nature of the ground over which it flows. Um, so, what really interested me there is it seems that the strategy is constant. Um, it's sort of this embrace of flexibility. And the tactics are sort of how the strategy manifests as it encounters the facts on the ground, the lay of the land. Um, and so it it seems to me like he was saying strategy is the shapeless water that is adaptive and sort of fits the fits the mold that um, the land provides for it. And then the tactics are uh, the way the water looks as it flows into a particular rivulet that's dic- dictated by uh, the ground. Um, and I thought that was a really beautiful but also powerful image. Uh, Especially because it reminded me actually of, um, the prince in Machiavelli when, um, when Machiavelli says that fortune itself is a rushing river and what the prudent, uh, person does is erects, uh, sort of, um, dam structures, different, uh, diversionary, uh, built structures to to direct the flow in one direction or another. And so um, I thought that was kind of an interesting echo of these uh, political thinkers through time. But I guess that's a very long wind up to asking you both what you made of this distinction. What I took away from that section was do not repeat the tactics portion. 
Um, and it seems to me a very eloquent and beautiful way of saying that, you know, life is situational, conflicts are situational, and it's just like, it's basic common sense, but presented in this very po poetic way. I, I yeah. liked it because it felt like it coincided with this notion of method and discipline and planning in that you, you know, in life, in, there's not one playbook that you can just apply to everything. You you have you kind of have to assess your situation. And that's what any smart person would do in any situation, let alone whether they're fighting war or not. And I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that he used a, a natural reference, as I think, since he was clearly very fascinated by topography. It was mm -hmm. a consistent theme. Part of what interested me about it is that, you know, flip-flopping is not today a virtue. Inconsistency is not a virtue. And yet um, he sort of reframes it as adaptability, flexibility, malleability, some kind of wiliness. And I kind of liked the notion that not only should you conceal your specific uh, tactics, but you should conceal your tendencies. Like, don't reveal your even your dispositions. Don't be predictable. Like, don't be the type of person where um, – Oh, well, now Katie will make a joke because she feels awkward. I've seen her do it a thousand times. Like maybe <laughs> one time make a joke, the next time punch the person in the face. Just um, that, that notion that you need to not be the type of person that someone can, uh, can suss out. Uh, you need to be mysterious. You need to be unpredictable. Uh, actually made me think of Trump. Like that's one thing that he does do well. But it sounds so lonely because if you don't, if no one can predict you, that means that no one really knows you. Yeah. No one understands you. This also reminds me of I took in college a global security class and we had a CIA analyst or something come by and talk to us. And he said, you know, if you want to be an agent one day, which of course I obviously thought I was going to be, he was like, make sure you don't. Are you? Are you an agent? Secret yeah. I'm embedded here at Slate Magazine <laughs> spying on all of you. Um, oh, God. She just dispatched just, assassins oh to take us out because now we know. Now we know. Um, now I, I'm pausing because my handler is contacting me. I do like spy shows, but anyway, bad tangent. But I will say that he said to us, he said, don't walk the same, do you walk the same path to class every day? Don't do that. Like that's, you know, was taught mm -hmm. and like this was someone who literally was engaged in the art of warfare, you know, overseas and said, was talking about predictability and what a liability that could be. And mm -hmm. of course, for a couple of days, I tried to walk a different path to class and then I got bored and I decided I didn't <laughs> want to do that anymore. But yeah, I think, you know, that the notion that predictability is somehow a weakness, like you you get comfortable, you let your guard down, and that's when you make mistakes. And predictability is also kind of antithetical to this notion of ultimate preparation, too, that you need to be gaming everything out as opposed to just relying on instinct and the well-worn path. So there, there is this 11-dimensional chess chaos theory of this administration. And if you're looking for clues as to, you know, potential origins, uh, Steve Bannon uh, has allegedly, this is allegedly Steve Bannon's Bible, according to his former, one of his former writing partner, partners for, you know, a number of years in Los Angeles publicly said that he just, she described it as literally his Bible. And the upshot of that sort of, you know, disruptive uh, 
perspective to tactics and politics, which I think can be seen in people. People said this a lot when the um, first uh, travel ban uh, came out and it was just a nightmare. It was horrible and it, it did so much damage. Uh, but it, you know, people uh, being turned back at the airports who legally had the right to be here, um, people not being allowed onto airplanes who legally had the right to be here um, and who legally had the right to be here. And all this just like damage and trauma to so many people that was so visible, though, and caused such a backlash. Uh, but people posited at the time that, you know what? Uh, Steve Bannon, who was one of the principal architects of this policy, wants this chaos. He wants a stress test. Uh, th- this this yeah. disruption, a stress test, so- something like that. Exactly. But the the upshot of this is that um, Sun Tzu also says never get into protracted battles. If you're yeah. if you get in a protracted battle, you lay siege. You're going to lose and what this this specific example of chaos caused was the the great potential for a protracted battle in the courts that we're still seeing and uh that they are you know uh it seemed to be losing and they did lose because this initial they they actually backed down from this initial travel ban and are trying a new one that the courts have again rejected but uh there are points in this book that if you apply them to to the current political climate, you can see where the different contradictions in Sun Tzu's thinking might run into each other. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, just to switch gears a little bit, I wonder if we, I mean, Ava, you brought up the uh, the natural metaphors uh, or the, the imagery from the natural world. And it did strike me um, that that was something that he kept referring to. Um, he has lines like that, I keep confusing them with the lines from the Mulan song, I'll make a man out of you. You must be swift as a coursing river. But he says, let your rapidity be that of the wind, your compactness that of the forest. Um, And he goes on in that way for a while. But these kinds of – I saw them as almost stylistic frills because they don't seem designed to really teach you or or be revelatory. They seem like – just demonstrations that he is wise um, and because he can invoke the natural world and sort of have this um, this greater perspective that's sort of like extra human uh, in that it's – sorry, outside of human um, – that we should heed his advice. And it almost made me wonder if this was sort of the sixth century Chinese version of truthiness. If you can, <laughs> if you can mention rocks and stones and trees, then, um, you must know whereof you speak, um, and you must speak true, uh, true things. The moment he got to nature, he kind of lost me, city, child of the city that I am. But it, I too was trying to wonder what he was doing because he went from these like very, you know, grand, high-level, almost essentialist notions, and then suddenly is on this very specific level. Like, well, make sure you attack this way in this quadrant of land. It's it was so foreign, and it seems so specific. I was like, what is what's going on here? I got. I know you like your lists, Sun Tzu, and like nature seems like a great opportunity to list things out. Here are various things we we see in nature, but it all it, it was the same feeling for me. It it kind of didn't blend. I'm almost wondering if there are multiple authors here. Hmm. 
That's a really interesting question. I didn't think of that. There was sort of like the monk who was sitting and observing the beauty of his surroundings and then Sun Tzu who's, who's saying, all right, but how do you set someone on fire? Um, the method? Yeah. I think there is, there's a theory in my reading of this that it might not have been a single author. It might have been a collection of military advice and, you know, Sun Tzu, while possibly a historical figure, may not have been the author of this and that would explain that but i don't i don't haven't dug, dug down into the scholarship of this enough to know which is the right answer i think i think though it's an open question hmm. i tend to prefer great man theories i find them kind of more inspiring that one great person like was just so brilliant and we can thus all aspire to that kind of brilliance uh but yeah I, who, who 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 doesn't want to try to be like sun tzu yeah. everybody right no, I, I don't think so. I think that's what we're unpacking. That we don't. The art of de- deception. No, I don't like also it one bit. For, um, so, so that makes sense to me because for someone who is so very against transparency and even has a – what is like the one – he says like, oh, divine art of secrecy and subtlety. And then the next um, – <laughs> literally the next bullet point is like if the enemy is standing across from you staring at you angrily, that is a time for increased vigilance. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks. thank you, Captain Obvious. Like I think that is when I would go inside my tent and be like, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. So uh, there is, uh, I do think that he states the obvious um, a lot, and then he uh, he prizes uh, nuance and secrecy and slipperiness, and it doesn't all quite uh, cohere. Which kind of begs the question, who's the intended audience here? Is it for warlords in training, or is he thinking about, you know, just the normal pleb who maybe should get some insight into his genius and their leader's genius, and why should they just, they should just accept the strategy? It would definitely have been generals, right? It's ge- it's got to be generals, but like, but a general but, should already know this. Well, you're right because it, it, so much of it is kind of feels like vague and intuitive, but at the same time, it had a lot of it was presented in a very you know instructional kind of yeah instructional and kind of a uh, beautiful way. And at the same time, here here's one that like it may be you know be like well which one. What's going on here? Though, though we have heard of though we have heard of stupid haste in war, cleverness has not been seen associated with long delays. Which one is it? It make up your mind, Sun Tzu. It, it can't be uh, both. It, it's is it maybe it's a happy happy medium. You know, you have to adapt your strategy and your or you have to adapt your tactics. See, this I'm bad on strategy and tactics. Either way, you have to adapt to something. No, Sun Tzu, just tell me what to do. I just want to know which one it is. I guess you're right, though. Oh, he does say so when he says it's it's situational. That's true. Crap. Oh my god, I've mastered the art of war. Wow. Um, Ava, Ava's winning. You got the the diploma. Ava, Ava, you won the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I should say more. Yeah. Uh, One last thing, I did enjoy that for all his. his hammering home the point that no matter uh, th- that you can't have fixed rules, this is all fluid. Strategy is all fluid. Um, there are certain things that always hold. Uh, for instance, uh, marsh warfare, mountain warfare, and river warfare. He basically says the secret to these things are don't do them ever. 
So if you would like to conduct war in a river, in a flowing stream, which may uh, be a metaphor for fate or your own strategy, depending on who you're reading, do not do that. Um, You should always fight someone on level ground and um, or if you are flowing downhill, if you're if your host is going downhill towards um, so you can work up momentum towards the other army. Um, I did appreciate those hard and fast rules that he uh, just tossed off with uh, no ceremony whatsoever. Like that entire section was like three sentences long and it was great. I enjoyed references to drums. Oh, yeah. That was actually pretty cool um, when he said that uh, the reason that we have flags and banners is to focus the uh, the many eyes of the army, of our of our army Um as if they were one eye on one object. And the reason that we have drums is to focus the many ears of all the soldiers as if they were one ear on one object. I thought that was interesting and lovely. I, li- I like that a lot too. But again, there's not really much practical use for it in today's uh, world, business, politics, or otherwise, I don't think. But it's, it was fun. I liked it. Although well, at yeah. the Women's March in New York, there was a really cool band at one point great drums and you the energy changes i mean it's usually i would think you know i would be very skeptical of something oh you know being together as a group is so hokey so now we have to like joint add in music too but it was really really powerful uh and i so maybe it's just it's it's hard because how many of us have been in the context where these things would really matter to us so i don't want to poo-poo it entirely or maybe i just want to argue with jeremy and I think, you know, symbolically, there's something to the idea that one spirit animates uh, all the many different pieces, of, you know, all the many people participating in a movement, that, that there is a solidarity that's tr- transcending the individual. Um, and that is definitely something that has lasted beyond the 6th century uh, BCE. So um, I think maybe uh, I'd like to go around and just ask you guys whether you would recommend this book to a friend trying to make it in the jungle that is 2017 America. So can I tell the story of how we we decided to read this book as a group, sure. uh, which was on an internal you know messaging conversation on Slack. There was a prompt, you know, what were things we thought that would be true in the Trump administration or would kind of change about life during the Trump administration or the things that kind of hadn't been true before. And I kind of sarcastically threw out a few ideas, one of which was the sales of the art of war would skyrocket. No one, everyone ignored me, which I'm accustomed to and was totally appropriate, <laughs> uh, except for Jeremy, who immediately, you know, sent me a, a message privately and said, I, I just bought it. And I said, <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, you know, we should... He said, I haven't re- read it yet. And I was like, I haven't read it yet either. And the only way I will is if I have some kind of formal commitment to it. So I said, let's do a book club. And then I was like, better yet. Let's do an audio book club. <laughs> so for those of you who don't necessarily have an audio book club at your disposal to help you maintain your commitments, I would In which say, case, what are you doing What are you doing your with life? your life, people? I would say, like, go through it with a friend and it's like, have fun with it because, I, you know, it is a an iconic piece. I, literature seems like the wrong word, but it is, you know, it's part of that canon. And it does seem to inform a lot of things that happen day to day life, whether it comes to negotiation or there are a lot of themes from kind of management uh, theory that I, I noticed coming up a little bit in here. And, you know, 
do it with a friend. Don't be lonely like the generals Mm -hmm. or the commanders. Find a friend. And then you can go around telling people for the rest of your life, you know, I've read this. Because I feel like this is one of those books where I'm like, oh, yeah, The Art of War. But very few people have actually read it. And at cocktail parties, you will actually, you know, know what's going on. And you definitely want to be that person. cocktail parties. Yeah, that book is probably a lot better. (laughs) But, you know, who does – you can just be that guy or that, that gal at a cocktail party. Excellent. What about you, Jeremy? Yeah, this is definitely a, a be the person who knows the art of war reference 17, chapter three uh, at the cocktail party and its applicability to acquiring cocktail wieners or whatever uh, in in that situation. Uh, but I, I think that that's the only context in which I would recommend this book is if you want to you want to have that base of knowledge, you want to have read this iconic thing and you want to be able to have it in the back of your mind at times to reference maybe and be kind of smart. Uh, but I, as an enjoyable kind of thing to spend, you know, a, 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 a break in your afternoon doing, I don't know that I would recommend this as a particularly fun read. I didn't like, I didn't, there were lovely points and, you know, beautiful descriptions, but we, we just mentioned most of them, I feel like. So just listen to this podcast. Totally and, and, and if you have to, like, read it, maybe listen to, I found the uh, British uh, audiobook on YouTube, very sonorous and pleasant and, and just uh, enjoyable in a way that maybe actually reading the words and, like, going back and thinking – if I want to really take this in, I have to, I had to reread a few points um, at a few points, and it was kind of frustrating to me and annoying to me. And the the book club, you can just kind of it, it's like white noise. I feel like if if that's what you want to do, do that. Or if you want to like be smart at the cocktail party, do that. Yeah, I mean, I think I fall somewhere in between you two. I can see a situation where you are at the cocktail party, you are um, a little bit intoxicated, and suddenly it seems profoundly meaningful to you that a chariot um, raises a different type of dust cloud than a group of infantrymen. I want to go to and that suddenly, party. Yeah. And like suddenly you just realize that this uh, this part of the pamphlet distinguishing between those types of dust clouds is uh, very beautiful and meaningful and symbolic in some way. Um that might be an experience that you want to have. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I'm not sure how enjoyable it is to read. I'm also not sure um, how much I want a whole bunch of uh, people to walk around having imbibed these lessons about how you should have no principles and just adapt yourself to the circumstance and put men in desperate straits so that they feel like they like they have nothing to lose and must surrender their souls to you. Um doesn't seem like the most nice thing to do to your fellow people. But um, yeah, you know, if you've got a free moment, why not? It's short. I like that headline, The Art of War, Not a Nice Book. (laughs) (laughs) Very unfair, bad, sad, not nice. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me. This was super fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. 
You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And thanks for the assist, Dan Bloom. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Jeremy Stahl and Ava Lubell, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.